0: Welcome to Theory of Indivisibility, solutions-focused evolutionary analysis of our social, economic, and political systems delivered to you in short, digestible episodes. I'm your host, Dr. Sunjata.
1: What's
0: up, everybody? Thank you for being here and joining me for another episode. I'm excited to announce that the show is now available on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and several others. So don't forget to subscribe so that you never miss a new release. In the previous episode, How Did We Get Here? Part 2, we discussed the evolution of all things, including human life starting from the origins of our universe. I provided several evolutionary highlights from the first 13.8 billion years of the observable universe's existence. I felt like that was important to do because I feel like a thorough understanding of evolution is really important for understanding our world. It it really puts things in in its proper context. It really puts everything in terms of the unfolding of everything into its proper context. And this podcast itself is an evolutionary process as well, so I highly recommend starting from episode one if you haven't already done so. On today's episode, we're going to discuss the evolution of power. Initially, I thought we only spend one episode on power in each system that we'll explore, but while I was prepping my thoughts and research for this episode, I realized that there's just so much to cover in terms of power, and also power especially power over is such an important foundation for all of the social systems that are in place in our society today that I felt like I would be doing a disservice by either a making a really, really long episode because I promised to keep these short um, and B just making a short one where I didn't really get to go into the type of depth that is needed. So for power I decided that we're going to split each episode. I'm sorry, we're going to split power into three episodes, power part one, two, and three. So during today's show, we're going to analyze the evolutionary origins of power. During part two, we'll discuss the present day complexities of power. And lastly, during part three, we will discuss how my theory of indivisibility applies to power. And we'll also take a look at how some people are creating new power systems rooted in sustainability Equity, freedom, and love. Like everything else in the observable universe, our social systems have evolved since the first Homo sapiens appeared on Earth 300,000 years ago, including systems of power. Power in a social context can be defined as the ability of an individual to influence the behavior of others. Power in society is dynamic and complex. It has different meanings depending on context, and has been... And it has been the driving force behind the evolution of all of our social systems. There's power to, which is used when discussing individual agency, personal choices, individual abilities, strengths, weaknesses, etc. There's power with, which is used when discussing how individuals use their power to collaborate and work with others. And then there's power over, which is used to discuss how individuals use power to control others. So let's get into the evolutionary origins of power. According to archaeologists, prior to the agricultural revolution, humans did not live in societies stratified along the lines of wealth, social status, gender and power. For the previous approximately 290,000 years of Homo sapiens existence as a species, our ancestors lived as hunter gatherers in egalitarian societies. Egalitarian societies are characterized by having social and economic equality amongst all the people. In pre agricultural societies, hunter gatherers lived nomadic lives and depended heavily on one another for survival. Everyone had a role and they shared all of the responsibilities and resources. So, that right there is an example of power with. So, for the first literally 90 plus percent of the existence of our species, They live within power with societies. Much of what archaeologists infer about hunter gatherers is based on research on modern hunter gatherer tribes, those who've never been touched by civilization. So here's an excerpt from an article written by Psychology Today by evolutionary biologist and research professor at Boston College, Dr. Peter Gray. Begin quote. During the 20th century, Anthropologists discovered and studied dozens of different hunter-gatherer excuse me, hunter-gatherer societies in various remote parts of the world who had been nearly untouched by modern influences. Wherever they were found, in Africa, Asia, South America, or elsewhere, in deserts or in jungles, these societies had many characteristics in common. The people lived in small bands of about 20 to 50 persons, including children, per band, who moved from camp to camp within a relatively circumscribed area to follow the available game and edible vegetation. The people had friends and relatives and neighboring bands and maintained peaceful relationships with neighboring bands. Warfare was unknown to most of these societies, and where it was known, it was the result of interactions with warlike groups of people who were not hunter gatherers. In each of these societies, the dominant cultural ethos was one that emphasized individual autonomy, self directive child rearing methods, nonviolence, sharing, cooperation, and consensual decision making. Their core value, which underlay all the rest, was that of the equality of individuals. We citizens of a modern democracy claim to believe in equality, but our sense of equality is not even close to that of hunter-gatherers. The hunter-gatherer version of equality meant that each person was equally entitled to food, regardless of his or her ability to find or capture it, so food was shared. It meant that nobody had more wealth than anyone else, so all material goods were shared. It meant that nobody had the right to tell others what to do. So each person made his or her own decisions. It meant that even parents didn't have the right to order their children around. It meant that group decisions had to be made by consensus. Hence, no boss, big man, or chief. If just one anthropologist had reported all of this, we might assume that he or she was a starry-eyed romantic who was seeing things that weren't really there, or was a liar. But many anthropologists of all political stripes Regarding many different hunter gatherer cultures, have told the same general story. When you read about warlike primitive tribes, or about indigenous people who held slaves, or about tribal cultures with gross inequalities between men and women, you are not reading about banned hunter gatherers. The hunter gatherer way of life, unlike the agricultural way of life that followed it, apparently depended on intense cooperation and sharing backed up by a strong egalitarian ethos. So why and how did this change? Why did people go from power with to power over social systems? Well, the answer in short is population growth. During the agricultural revolution, 10 to 12,000 years ago, power over social systems took root due to humans now having the ability to form settlements because of their ability to produce and store food through farming. This new sedentary lifestyle created a need for the development of new social systems that could organize growing populations and could also protect their food and resources. Over the course of tens of thousands of years, as societies grew from bands, which were populations of dozens of people, to tribes, which were populations of hundreds of people, and from tribes to chiefdoms, chiefdoms were populations of thousands of people, and then from chiefdoms to states. And states were populations of 50,000 or more people. As this shift happened and population growth happened over time, power consolidated and control over land and food, as well as protection from competing tribes became a tool for the emergence of rulers and elite class. And an elite class of people who would begin to wield power over and control over commoners in a variety of ways. To provide deeper insights into how systems of power over and control evolved, I'm going to share an excerpt from a book titled The Parable of Tribes by Andrew Schmuckler. I hope I said that right, Andrew, if you're listening. The Parable of the Tribes analyzes the problem of power in social evolution by synthesizing history, evolutionary biology, political theory and psychology. Begin quote. In nature, all pursue survival for themselves and their kind but they can do so only within biologically evolved limits. The living order of nature, though it has no ruler, is not in the least anarchic. Each pursues a kind of self-interest. Each is a law unto itself, but the separate interests and laws have been formed over eons of natural selection to form part of a tightly ordered harmonious system. Although the state of nature involves struggle, the struggle is part of an order. Each component of the living system has a defined place out of which no ambition can extricate it. Hunting gathering societies were to a very great extent likewise contained by natural limits. End quote. So an example of what I just shared uh, was given in a video that I recently saw um, where the the person talking was sharing how when you look at the ways that human systems are different than natural systems, it was he was highlighting how human systems uh, could look at natural systems as a model for how our social, economic and political systems should operate. Um, with a special focus, this video actually focused on our economic model, ca- capitalism. And the example that he gave was saying that look at the lion in the jungle. He said, you know, in our capitalistic society, and our systems, you know, it's all about maximizing power, maximizing revenue, and, you know, uh, market share, et cetera, et cetera, and growing, 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 growing. And the more you grow, the better. But he said, you know, and the power keeps growing, they consolidate power, they buy up other companies, et cetera. We know the examples, right? And he gave the example of how the lion is the apex predator uh, in the jungle. And if the lion wanted to go out and just kill, 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 kill and max and and utilize its power to do so, it could. But the lion doesn't do that. The lion lays around most of the day doing nothing. And when it's time to eat and go out and, and kill and hunt, then then, you know, the lions do that. But they do so within the balance of nature. Lions don't abuse their power of being an apex predator. They operate within the natural order of nature to create balance and a harmonious system in their environment. And our social systems, our economic systems, political systems, they don't operate in that way. So that video is, I'll leave it in the show notes, it's titled Capitalism 2.0. It's very insightful. So let me continue on with uh, the excerpt from the book begin quote with the rise of civilizations the limits began to fall away for humans the natural self-interest and pursuit of survival remain but they are no longer governed by any order the new civilized forms of society with more complex social and political structures created the new possibility of indefinite social expansion more and more people organized over more and more territory in a finite world, societies all seeking to escape death dealing scarcity through expansion will inevitably come to confront each other. Civilized societies, therefore, though lacking inherent limitations to their growth, do encounter new external limits in the form of one another. End quote. So what I just read was the author prefacing the actual parable uh, that's at the heart of the book, The Parable of the Tribes. So now I'm going to jump into the parable, which gives us um, context for how power over and control systems evolved based on the theory uh, presented within this book. Begin quote. Imagine a group of tribes living within reach of one another. If all choose the way of peace, then all may live in peace. But what if all but one choose peace? and that one is ambitious for expansion and conquest. What can happen to the others when confronted by an ambitious and potent neighbor? Perhaps one tribe is attacked and defeated, its people destroyed, and its land seized for the use of the victors. Another is defeated, but this one is not exterminated. Rather, it is subjugated and transformed to serve the conqueror. A third seeking to avoid such disaster flees from the area into some inaccessible and undesirable place, and its former homeland becomes part of the growing empire of the power-seeking tribe. Let us suppose that others observing these developments decide to defend themselves in order to preserve themselves and their autonomy. But the irony is, is that successful defense against a power-maximizing aggressor requires a society to become more like the society that threatens it. Power can be stopped only by power. And if the threatening society has discovered ways to magnify its power through innovations in organization or technology or whatever, the defensive society will have to transform itself into something more like its foe in order to resist the external force. This parable is a theory of social evolution which shows that power is like a contaminant, a disease, which once introduced will gradually yet inexorably become universal in the system of competing societies. More important than the inevitable of the struggle for power is the profound social evolutionary consequence of that struggle once it begins people inadvertently stumbled into a struggle for power beyond their ability to avoid it or to stop it. This struggle generated a selective process also beyond human control, which molded change in a direction that was inevitable toward power maximization in human societies. End quote. So based on what I just shared, that is a theory based on a lot of evidence that the author presented and a theory that introduced us to power over systems. So I want to emphasize the last sentence because I think it's really, really important. I also want to highlight the sentence that states, more important than the inevitability of the struggle for power is the profound social evolutionary consequence of that struggle once it begins. I want to highlight that sentence because we are currently living with the profound social evolutionary consequences of that struggle. Because power over and control systems literally pervade every system in our society. And I'll get more into that as the power shows evolve. But let's get back into focusing on that last sentence where it states, This struggle generated a selective process also beyond human control, which molded change in a direction that was inevitable toward power maximization in human societies. So what does the author mean by selective process? Selective process refers to the scientific concept known as natural selection, initially theorized by Charles Darwin in support of his theory of evolution. In short, natural selection means that individuals best adapted to their environments are more likely to survive and reproduce. So basically, the author is stating that this initial struggle that required some tribes to protect themselves against an aggressive tribe set in motion the creation of systems of power maximization, a.k.a. power over and control, that over time evolved to play a role in the development of cultural norms a.k.a. social systems, as populations grew from bands and tribes to larger civilizations of chiefdoms and then states. So why does the author state that this was beyond human control? Why did he say that it was inevitable? His statements are rooted in systems thinking. Systems thinking teaches us that structure influences behavior, meaning that the design of a system causes its dysfunction, not individual human choices or mistakes. The design of a system has more power over an individual's behavior than an individual's personal choices alone. Now, I get a lot of people pushing back against me whenever I say that, (laughs) right? It it causes a lot of cognitive dissonance because we grew up in a society that talked about, you know, personal choices, you know, and, um, you know, individual choice and personal choice and personal power and all these various things um, and rugged individualism. And all these different things in terms of how you go from, you know, where you are and ascend up, you know, the social stratification ladder, right? Ascend to success. And so it's really hard for people to wrap their minds around the idea that the system that we all live in is more powerful than any of our individual behavior. So let me give you a few, a few examples of that. Think about this. Why do so many people go to jobs every day that they hate? I'm not saying everyone hates their job, but for those who do, why do they continue to go every day and complain? And I'm sure everyone listening to this knows someone that complains about going to work every day. Well, it's because the design of our economic system requires it for those who desire to meet their basic needs and live relatively comfortable. I'll give you another example. One that I like to use. I like to use analogies of of sports when I'm talking about systems. So think about basketball. All those players can, you know, with their amazing abilities and talents, they can only exercise that amazing, those amazing abilities and talents within the rules of the game. So no matter how athletic, say someone like a, Kobe Bryant or Michael Jordan or today LeBron James is, they are not allowed to jump up on the rim and hang on the rim and every time the opposing team shoots the ball, just knock it away. Do they have the athletic talent to do it? Absolutely. Would that prevent the other team from scoring if they just stood there and every time someone shot the ball, they just jumped on the rim and swatted it away? Absolutely. But that's not within the rules of the game. That's not within the design of the system. So they can only exercise their abilities and show their talents and gifts and their talents and gifts only manifest within the rules of the game. Right. So it's the design of the system that produces the behavior and changing underlying structures can produce different patterns of behavior. Here's an example for you to visualize. In the book Thinking and Systems, Danella Meadows explains how she uses a slinky when teaching about systems in her classes. Imagine that I have a slinky sitting in the palm of my hand. Now imagine me grabbing the top of the slinky with my other hand, and then I pull my bottom hand away. What will happen next? Right, the lower end of the slinky drops, and then it yo-yos up and down. So then she would ask her class the next question, which would be, so what made the slinky bounce up and down like that? And many of the students would say, your hand, you took your hand away. So then pick up the, she would pick up the box that the slinky came in and she would hold it the same way. She would put the box in one palm and then she would grab the box with the other hand and then she would remove her bottom hand while holding the box in the other hand from the top. And when she removed her hand from the box, nothing happens. The box just hangs. I'm sorry, when she removes her bottom hand, nothing happens. The box just hangs there. So again, What made the slinky bounce up and down like that? I'll pause for you to ponder that question. The answer lies within the slinky itself. The hands that manipulate it either suppress or release some behavior that is latent within the structure of the slinky. Once we begin to see the relationship between structure, how a system is designed, and behavior, the results a system consistently produces based on this design, we can begin to understand how our social systems work, what makes them continually produce dysfunctional results, and how to shift them into healthier behavior patterns. As the slinky example illustrates, a system may be manipulated or triggered by outside forces, but the system's response to these forces is characteristic of the system itself. The system, to a large extent, causes its own behavior. An outside force or event may unleash that behavior, but the same outside event applied to a different system, like for example, the slinky box, is likely to produce a different result. I want you all to kind of sit with that example for a while. Pause this if you have to, and really, really think about that. Because for me, that is when when I read that, It was years ago when I was first getting introduced to systems thinking. When I read that, that really opened my mind to a whole new world, really. It was like night became day. And I could understand that we do have the power to design better systems. So if certain actions continue to happen within our current social, economic and political systems, We don't have to just continue to accept them. We can design a new system where the same behavior within a different system has a totally different result. Let me think of an I'm gonna think of an example. Something just came to mind. And for many, many years in this country, marijuana was illegal. This natural plant was illegal. Right. And if you don't know the history of why marijuana became legal, please go research it. But. So whoever so got caught selling marijuana, um, you know, they went to jail if they had a certain amount, et cetera. Right. They went to jail. And unfortunately, that impacted people of African descent at greater rates than any other population in the country and contributed to mass incarceration in this country. But that's for another show. Um, but for a long time. People, let's just say, you know, people selling marijuana was the removing of the hand. And within the current, within the previous system, and it's still currently in most states, when you remove your hand and that slinky bounces up and down, that's representative of people having to go to jail or, you know, various things, various dysfunctions from selling and using marijuana. But now, if you create a country where, like some states, all states legalize marijuana, now the moving of the hand, that behavior, that action, which is people, again, using or selling marijuana legally, legally. It no longer within a within a country that has all the states that legalizes it. Now that's that's like the box. So now when you move your hand or when people sell or use in this analogy, nothing happens, right? Because we simply change the design of the system. So imagine if we use that logic to get rid of so many other dysfunctional aspects of society. I hope that makes sense. <laughs> So let's move forward. So once systems of power over and control begin to evolve in societies, so too does systems of oppression. I grew up being taught that human conditions have always improved over time and that even though society can be harsh at times with, you know, current crime rates and police brutality, racism, sexism, poverty, hunger, etc. All these various things that we deal with presently is still better and more humane than it used to be. How about you all? Did you all grow up with that sense that things are better than it used to be, even though there's still a lot of nasty, ugly things that happen currently? Well, the book Parable of the Tribes provides a broader perspective on that train of thought. It states, The idea of history as progress is itself a relatively recent origin. And those who endorse that idea are usually looking only at relatively recent history for support. In earlier eras of history, the cutting edge of civilization's progress led from freedom into bondage for the common person. The great monuments of the ancient world were built with the sweat of slaves whose civilized ancestors had not known the oppressor's whip. End quote. Think about that for a second. There was a time when human beings... No, no human being was enslaved. And then later generations actually became enslaved. We tend to think that, again, these things end, things like slavery and all these various things have ended and we have it better. But we don't go back far enough to realize that, hey, there were people before way back when that may have had it even better than we, quote unquote, think is better. So that was that was really interesting. So let's talk about talk more about oppression. According to sociologist Ashley Crossman, social oppression includes the systemic mistreatment, exploitation, and abuse of a group or groups of people by another group or groups. It occurs whenever one group holds power over another in society through the control of social institutions along with society's laws, customs, and norms. The outcome of social oppression is that groups in society are sorted into different positions within the social hierarchies of race, class, gender, sexuality, ability, etc. Those in a controlling or dominant group benefit from the oppression of other groups through heightened privileges relative to others. Greater access to rights and resources, a better quality of life, and overall greater life chances. Those who experience the brunt of oppression have fewer rights, Less access to resources, less political power, lower economic potential, worse health, higher mortality rates, and lower overall life chances. End quote. So, as these populations began to grow, why did the masses of people accept power over and control systems? Were there any benefits to them? There's a chapter titled "From Egalitarianism to Kleptocracy" in the Pulitzer Prize-winning book *Guns, Germs, and Steel* by Jared Diamond. That's dedicated to the evolution of power over and control dynamics being introduced into societies. It's a really, really good book and it goes into great detail. And I actually listened to the entire book and several times I've listened to this particular chapter uh, while I was researching for this show. And first, let me share what a kleptocracy is. A kleptocracy is a government with leaders that use their power to exploit the people and natural resources of their own territory in order to extend their personal wealth and political powers. So Jared Diamond in the book Guns, Germs and Steel, he goes on to explain the evolution from how uh, societies grew from bands to tribes. And then when they transitioned from tribes to um, chiefdoms. That's when you started to have kleptocracies and power over and control dynamics start to uh, be introduced into society and to grow. And he goes on in the discussion during this chapter to explain that he gives four reasons of I'm sorry, four ways that the elites gain support, even while also maintaining more comfortable lifestyles than the commoners. Like when you think about because one of the things that I always asked was, well, why don't people Rise up and fight back, right? And like in a major way to totally shift things uh, from the current power over and control dynamics that pervade society throughout history and up into the present. And he gave four reasons. Number one, one of the one of the first tactics that the elites used was to disarm the populace and arm the elite. And he notes that that's much easier in these days of high tech weaponry produced. Produced only in industrial plants and easily monopolized by an elite than it was in ancient times of spears and clubs, which could easily be made at home. So, you know, when it was just tribes and, and bands, it was harder t- for someone to, you know, gain that type of power because they didn't have that the resources, um, etc. So, number two, make the masses happy by redistrib- redistributing much of the tribute. Tribute meaning the food, the labor, and eventually the taxes that the rulers and elite forced upon the commoners. So if they found a happy balance and they said, we're using these, uh, the food and we're distributing it evenly or in a fair way, or we are using the labor from the slaves that we've encountered from these conquered tribes, right? Or from the slaves amongst the commoners in our in our village or whatever, um, we, we are using that to build infrastructure, um, uh, you know, places of worship, um, or in today's time, it's like using taxes to build parks and playgrounds or to repair roads and, you know, fund public schools, etc. And that's another reason why the masses continue to accept centralized power. Um, you know, because, it it was looked at as necessary for the organization to get these type of things done for organization to, to build, you know, the infrastructure of that society. The third reason was they used the monopoly of force to promote happiness by maintaining public order and curbing violence. So, you know, in the past, the rulers did this. They were the judge, you know, and the jury, you know, where we've seen in movies where, you know, King's, uh, you know, commoners who may commit crimes or whatever are brought before the king and the king can choose to execute them themselves or have them executed by one of their guards, etc., or put them in some type of holding cell or whatever. And currently this is done using police forces. Right. So the number four way. So excuse me, the number the number. F- yeah, the number four way that the the number the four. I'm sorry, the better way to say that is the fourth way that the elites gain support um, from the masses while also maintaining a more comfortable lifestyle from them is to gain public support by constructing an ideology or religion justifying kleptocracy. So bands and tribes already had supernatural beliefs, but the supernatural beliefs of bands and tribes did not serve to justify central authority, justify transfer of wealth or maintain peace between unrelated individuals. When supernatural beliefs gained those functions and became institutionalized, they were thereby transformed into what we now term a religion. So how does this apply to our present day issues with power? And what ways do our social systems still mirror the power over and control systems from approximately 10 to 12,000 years ago? We'll explore the answer to these questions and more next time on Theory of Indivisibility. Theory of Indivisibility is written and produced by me. If you enjoy this podcast, please rate and review it on your favorite podcast platform. And please tell your friends about the show by sharing it on social media. It really helps a lot. For show notes and resources, please visit patreon.com forward slash live indivisible. And while you're there, please consider becoming a patron of the show. I want to give a special thank you and shout out to my first three patrons of this work, Montoya, Amy, and Kathy. So it takes 20 to 30 hours of research, writing, producing, and editing to complete each show. My goal is to attract enough patron support for the show so that I can quit my current primary source of income and have enough time to consistently release episodes the same day, weekly. Fingers crossed. Those are my goals for anyone who wants to support this work. If you like the show, if you like the information being shared, please head over to patreon.com forward slash live and divisible. Once again, thank you for listening. And until next time, I love y'all. Peace.
1: Cause then you start to see the vibration hitting every nation. Check your foundation, a matter of energy. Got me circling for the world around me. Stand strong. Holding the position, I'll be long. Finish clearing the past, and then you move on to a new way to go. You're engaging the flow, the critical mass. Got a brother running so fast. But will I slow down the wheels of the bus go round around? Sitting thinking how I'm living, what the long, but now I'm coming to a point where I'm bridging the gap. I reckon living with the interpersonal ethic, emerging to another level with my culture.
0: Open your
1: Vision no time, open your mind in this, new vision, no time, open your mind to this, new vision, no time, open your mind to this, new vision, no time, open your mind in this.
0: Vision. 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 Theme song New Vision is performed by Achilles the Cosmonaut. Find more from Achilles the Cosmonaut on your favorite music streaming app.